Hey, welcome to the Weekend Bite presented by Wall Street Breakfast. I'm Daniel Snyder. And as we enter into the second quarter with spring right around the corner, is the market coiled as a spring ready to pop? That's what everyone is wondering. Is it time to put risk on? Some are claiming the inversion of the yield curves are different this time, and others are pointing out that it's still a solid indication that a recession is coming, but could take up to 18 or even 20 months, if not longer. Joining me this program is Victoria Scholar, Head of Investment at Interactive Investor, and Mark Newton, Global Head of Technical Strategy at Fundstrat Global Advisors. I thank you both for taking the time to join me today. Um, Mark, let's start with you. What are you seeing in this overall market view? We've had a lot of volatility, but now, you know, just the other day, the VIX dropped beneath 20, hit below 19, I believe. So what kind of uh, outlook are you looking at from here on out? Well, investors are still trying to get used to this new realm of volatility. And, and a lot of this just began last November. And so that was a time when the NASDAQ composite, the Russell 2000, Dow Jones transports all peaked out. Uh, the broader market largely had flattened out starting last summer. Uh, many people and investors were just not aware of that simply because the extent to which technology plays a role in the indices and really the domination of the so-called FANG stocks. So with Apple and Microsoft really comprising such a high percentage, you know, those were able to power higher into January. And then, of course, technology started to falter. So, you know, my outlook that I presented back in January suggested we should have a V-shaped type market uh, for this year where the first half could be substantially weaker and then we would rebound in the second half. So I am basically flat to plus 5% on the year. Uh, things are following as planned, so to speak, but I, I think that we could in fact still be vulnerable over the next few months. And, and really Q2 is where a lot of the cyclical pressure typically tends to happen, uh, particularly in a midterm election year. Uh, as you know, we had a down January and that adds to the probability, in my view, that the markets are going to be flat and really not as robust for this year. And so it's really been a very defensive tape. You know, in the last couple of months, we have utilities and REITs outperforming technology. Um, you know, very difficult to truly be bullish when technology is still under a lot of pressure. And we have seen, of course, stocks like Apple, which have been very resilient. But the broader tech space, when you look at equal weighted terms, is in much more dire straits, so to speak. And that's broken down below longer term trend lines. And so we still have a lot of pressure, not only in sort of the high growth tech, but also in the software space, which really is not rebounded to this, the extent I think that many investors want. So, you know, we're all sitting looking at these stocks similar to PayPal and Square Block saying, wow, what bargains. But yet these really have not given us sufficient reasons to want to go in and try to buy dips and think that they're really going to rebound. Uh, you know, I've been talking to clients for months about trying to position defensively, being diversified in this first half, looking at commodities and really energy. Energy remains one of my top sectors for the year. So I still think that really is a place to go is energy and defensive. And by defensive, I mean, in the first half, utilities, REITs. But overall for the year, I think healthcare is one of the best places to position also. So that's also uh, sort of a core idea for mine for 2022. But Look, I, I think the volatility is going to be with us for a while. So I think it, it's tough to see, you know, a 10 day rally and think that, you know, the lows are in and it's off to the races. I, I think if anything, you know, from sentiment studies, I've seen sentiment has started to get much, much more bullish. And people now are, are betting on the upside, buying upside calls and the equity put to call dropped down under 0.45, which for me is the lowest of the year. 
and there's a little bit of a worrisome signal that people are trying to jump aboard a little bit too quickly and expecting that markets are going to push back to new all-time high territory. Yeah, so Victoria, Mar- I mean, March has put out a lot of good points, right? Especially, <laughs> you know, where they say Jan- where January goes, the year goes, typically, right? There's so many different sayings. People are pointing to, uh, you know, the XLU, XLU making new 52-week highs. And it seems like everybody's going defensive. So as head of investment, what are you telling your clients? Yeah, I mean, it, typically January can set the stage for the rest of the year, but this is quite an unusual year because of the onset of war in Ukraine, which um, really is a major um, t- headwind for markets. You know, at the beginning of the year, markets were mainly concerned about inflation and the prospect of higher interest rates. Now that inflationary backdrop has been vastly exacerbated um, by the tensions between uh, Russia and Ukraine. So um, a lot of those trades that were potentially looking attractive in terms of uh, looking for protection against rising inflation, possibly looking towards the banks who are going to see improved net interest margins, those still hold. But, you know, this has been the first down quarter that we've seen in two years as we enter the second quarter now you know we had the luxury of indiscriminate gains off the lows after the covid driven sell-off um in march of 2020 um when we saw broad-based gains um but like mark was saying a lot of it was driven by technology uh last year so it was quite um dependent on a small number of stocks so it's a lot more challenging the market environment is clear to say Um, And as we look further ahead, I mean, we're looking at the banks that are interesting, um, oil and gas, obviously, Uh, the miners as well could be one to look out for. Also, Japan is quite interesting as well, because, um, you know, the whole world is concerned about inflation. Japan for a very long time has been grappling with deflation. So the prospect of inflation is actually quite welcome there. Um, It's also got a really good lid on COVID in terms of its vaccination program um, and cases. Uh, so that's another idea to look at too. Yeah, I just want to follow up. So for our audience that may not know, you're over in the UK and obviously mm. a lot of eyes are on the ECB as well. There's high inflation. There's worries about recession coming to Europe because of the war, because of continued COVID lockdowns, because of supply chain still getting hit. Um, how much is that going to be a factor with where we go from here? Because I know over here in the States, everybody's focusing on the uh, the yields and what's going on with the Fed. What's your take on all of that? Yeah, there's a huge focus here on inflation and uh, rising interest rates. The Bank of England was actually ahead of the back pack in terms of uh, raising interest rates, kicking off at the back end of last year. It's already raised rates three times and it looks as though we're poised for a series of further rate hikes going into uh, the rest of the year. And the FTSE 100 actually is quite attractive at the moment because it's got a favorable mix of um, a high weighting towards banking stocks and financial stocks. It's got a high weighting towards uh, miners as well. And also it's been beaten up since Brexit. And there's been a real uh, lack of investor confidence in the UK. Um, but now that the pandemic is starting to enter the rearview mirror, um, Brexit as well is sort of settling in, we're getting used to the idea now. Global investors are suddenly looking upon the UK as a potential investment opportunity again. 
Yeah, Mark, I'm wondering though, mentioning the yield curve inversion, right? Everybody has their eyes focused on the two and 10. We've already seen a bunch of other yield inversions happen. Um, in regards to, I mean, it's it's already technically inverted briefly. It's kind of just following that, what is it, at five basis points, I believe. Um, what how how is that going to correlate technically with what you're seeing on the charts? Are we are we is that what's gonna help fuel this back half rally? Is the money coming out of bonds and into stocks, or or you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, my own thinking is that treasuries are not likely going to be able to continue to sell off the, the balance of the year. My own cycle charts show that yields likely are going to peak out by the month of May and start to turn, turn down pretty sharply. So, you know, everybody's thinking that uh, the yield curve inversion could bring a recession. And, and, you know, historically, that's been correct. But it's typically, you know, predates it by about 8 to 12 months. So it typically happens ahead of time. Uh, it's really difficult to forecast the stock market based on something of that sort, but you do tend to get, uh, you know, eventually at least even a minor recession, when, at least in the past dozen times when we've seen the yield curve invert. Uh, and I think that, you know, Powell's stance in, in the States has rapidly changed. We've seen a big pivot and he's gotten a lot more hawkish and joined uh, Bullard in thinking that we really have to ratchet rates up aggressively. Uh, you know, my own thinking is that's probably not the right call only because my own thinking on inflation and the cycles I've studied suggests that it should be transitory and it should start to pull back naturally next year. So some of this could be honestly election driven where, you know, the average consumer now, you know, if you look at 40 percent of the public has less than one thousand dollars in savings and everybody's concerned about the rising price of gasoline and groceries. And that's truly where it hits the pocketbook. And so when you try to take steps to aggressively address inflation and saying we're going to keep hiking until we see evidence of that, uh, you know, I don't disagree that it could eventually work, but it could also stifle growth and we could see growth really start to uh, take a shot. So, you know, my own thinking is that, you know, there is a chance that we can get out of this without a prolonged recession. Um, there's no saying even if equities sell off into where I think June, July and then bottom out and rally that we would have to you know enter a, a potential bear market we, we could get out of this with just uh you know not much further decline but at the same time you know i i don't agree that hiking another 300 basis points into this uh economy is really what's what's warranted particularly for the globe i, I think that nobody truly knows the extent to which this russia ukraine uh, escalation is is going to hurt the economy and is just you have to really throw everything out the window at this point and think that, yes, supply shocks are going to be prolonged and that inflation is going to be here at least for the next three to six months. And that means commodities are generally the place you want to position and, and, and be involved with. So, um, you know, I'm not an economist. I, I don't I don't study, you know, recessions and have any any uh, sort of inkling as to where I think that the economy should go. But at the same time, I've studied market cycles and know that you know, I think we're still in for a volatile year and, and I'm hopeful that we can get through this and that the Fed, you know, given that potentially if the market starts to decline precipitously and the, the economy starts to turn out a little bit, that they'll slow down on these hikes and not go as aggressively is really what has been planned and shows up in the dot plot thus far. Yeah. Now, I was going to go ahead and move into tech, but I think I want to double down here a second on the commodities because of everything you just mentioned about oil. Um, I, I think there's a lot of curiosity out in the market and you being a technical guy and also being a fun strap. We know your colleagues there in the media frequently. Um, you guys have pretty much doubled down in energy. And, and I'm pretty sure Tom Lee's been in energy for as long as we can remember for months on months now. Right. Um, from what you see, is there any possibility 
within your scope of oil going above its all-time highs? I certainly don't think we can rule that out. Um, it's always tricky to try to forecast, even technically, you know, how much higher oil can go above all-time highs. Uh, I would simply say that, you know, from a fundamental perspective, and I, I'm granted I'm not a fundamental analyst, but it's going to be difficult for supply to really remain at levels that can put, uh, you know, try to balance demand. I mean, the consumer is still in excellent shape, and, and demand is still very strong. Uh, if, if if any sort of past meetings by OPEC Plus have been any guide, you know, it seems the, the countries all tend to bicker about compensation and are never really able to, you know, ratchet up output to the extent that's what's needed, and particularly to, to meet demand in this case. And now we're seeing, you know, the world sort of unify around this, this idea of, uh, you know, avoiding Russian energy. So, you know, I think we're going to continue to have uh, imbalances with regards to supply demand that are going to still put upper pressure on crude. Technically speaking, uh, we have seen meaningful relative breakouts. We saw WTI crude itself on an absolute basis, of course, get above highs that we saw back in 2014 and, and 2011 and up to the highest level since 2008. So, you know, I'm looking at 150 as being realistic, but, you know, my own cycle charts point higher into July of next year. So there's no saying that it couldn't go much higher. I don't have a, a grandiose long-term target on crude, but I'm I'm certainly bullish, and I feel that any sort of pullback in the seasonally weak period that t typically starts in May uh, is likely going to be a buying opportunity, and energy is still going to be an area that we all want to position and be long. Yeah, Victoria, what I mean, that must be pretty shocking, right? Talking about going back above 150 is a possibility. Not saying it's going to happen, but you're already seeing shocks over in Europe, obviously because of the war. Um, and LNG, specifically with Germany, we keep following that. Now they're talking about uh, taking the barrels back off of U.S. dollars and, and doing the Russian currency. So, I mean, how are you positioning for a move like that, if anything? Yeah, I mean, I think when we look at the oil market, just last year, there were calls for $100 oil that were sort of seen as um, quite far-fetched. Um, and then we quite rapidly surpassed that level, and we saw... Um, above $120. So um, the possibility of going towards 150 is on the table. Um, but fundamentally, it probably relies on quite a few factors all uh, happening at the same time, which would be that the war in Ukraine um, and the peace talks there show no signs of settling down. Um, if we were to see further supply shocks like we've seen in Kazakhstan, Saudi Arabia, at further outages, that could potentially put upward pressure. And then if we were to see the COVID situation in China uh, drastically improve, because there have been demand concerns um, from the world's second largest economy, and that's been um, putting a little bit of downward pressure on oil prices lately. So if China would come fully back online um, with a very strong outlook for demand, all of these factors, if they were to take place at the same time, and OPEC as well, sticking to its drip feed mentality, that it wants to stay clear of the politics um, and not feed too much supply into the markets. If we were to see all of those things, then I think anything would be possible. I mean, what we know for sure now is that the only real certainty in the oil market is volatility. You know, we're up above 120 um, just on Friday, last Friday, and now we're all, all the way back down towards uh, 100. So um, we can see sort of like the wild swings that we're seeing in the markets. Uh, and what was far-fetched last year has now been normalized this year. So we are seeing um, a very unprecedented 
uh, economic situation in terms of the war of Ukraine and the fact that we are coming out of the pandemic, which has created this huge imbalance between demand and supply. Um, so we could see some parallels to back in 2008 when we did hit those record highs. Yeah, and it's not worth you know mentioning that every time we've seen a recession, it's usually greeted by higher oil prices. So if we're going with higher oil prices here and we ex you know expect a recession might be coming, some people are saying that we need the recession as a reset. What do you think about that? Um, I don't necessarily think we need a recession as a reset, but I do think that there is a serious correlation between oil price spikes and recessions that tend to come a bit later. Uh, similarly, with the yield curve inversion and recessions there. So there are a number of indicators that are flagging up to suggest that there could be some kind of a recession on the horizon, uh, particularly given that inflation is rising and continues to worsen. And we are seeing signs of potentially slowing gro global growth. Um, so it is something certainly to be paying close attention to. But I think it's important not to just take any one factor in isolation. So you can't look at the yield curve on its own. We can't look at all price spikes on their own. You need to look at all of these different factors because each situation is unique. Yeah, Mark, I want to go back. And, and I think that was, you know, very insightful in regards to oil. But we were also talking about tech um, and how tech's a little bit different. And tech's been weak in this environment as the commodities and utilities and defensives have obviously shot to the upside. Uh, and you, you kind of mentioned that tech needs to get included in this rally in order for the, the market to move higher. Um, are we in a completely different market now with tech kind of leading the charge with how weighted, you know, even names like Apple are to the index? I would argue that it's not necessarily a new normal, but if anything, it's an old normal. You know, and if we think back to times <laughs> like the 1930s when AT&T was one of the largest constituents of the market, uh, along with the generals, General Motors, General Electric, uh, they stayed in the top five percentage for nearly 60 years. And so if anything, these times when a small percentage of companies dominate the indices uh, has only come around more recently in the last few years, but certainly has been with us overall globally for some time and, and a really a long period of time in U.S. markets. So I think it's just important for investors to recognize, you know, what comprises these these indices and, you know, use equal weighted indices and or equal weighted uh, ETFs as a way to truly study the sector rotation so you get a feel for how markets are performing. And if you're particularly if as a portfolio manager and many people radically underperformed last year because they they have the S&P as their benchmark, but yet they're not technology PMs and they might not own any tech and tech was doing just fine, whereas other sectors like industrials and discretionary and you know, financials had been lagging for some time. So, you know, it's just important that we all concentrate on on really what makes these up. Yeah, but in regards to tech, we saw a lot of multiples just completely contract, right? Okay. PEs were skyrocketed through the roof. So was it just a story of too much too fast? And it's just a quiet, like a quiet little reset right now so that it could get ready for the next move upward? Well, I view this this year as being, you know, part of a bigger cycle that, you know, I, I wrote about last November, December ahead of the Russia-Ukraine uh, war getting underway. So, you know, this is something that, that should have happened anyway with regards to the volatility. And, you know, technology has had a number of really, really good years. And now I think that's giving way and we're seeing 
uh, a real change. And now that's, you know, we're starting to see that now in energy uh, and in some of the other groups like healthcare, when we see the pharmaceutical stocks hitting new, you know, 20 year highs with things like uh, Pfizer and Merck and Eli Lilly and these stocks that literally had not done anything for such a long period of time that are now starting to reassert themselves. So, you know, the beauty of technical analysis is that, you know, I can I can take a look at, at uh, you know, all of these sectors and all investors can and, you know, sort of see these these types of rotations happening in really the best areas to position. So, you know, I, I'm not as uh, inclined to really view this as sort of a one off and it's a uh, you know, a, a Russian invasion in Ukraine type thing that's causing tech to decline. And so when that's over, then it's going to be off to the races. It's more just, you know, technology has been really caught in the, caught in the crossfairs for, for some time now. And we have uh, U.S. tech caught between censorship and antitrust regulation and really between left and right. And so it's, it's sort of a difficult landscape. I think we can all agree for uh, U.S. technology, uh, you know, more so than we've seen in some time. So is Fang still the place to be? I'm sorry, excuse me? I said, so is Fang still the place to be? With regards to technology, uh, the older tech companies with uh, better earnings, uh, honestly, are the area where I'm positioning. And technically speaking, you know, stocks like Juniper, uh, Cisco, Hewlett Packard, Texas Instruments, IBM, uh, they've held up in, in much more resilient fashion than a lot of the, you know, large cap Fang stocks. Uh, I would agree that for the year, I think that many of these FANG stocks are wonderful companies and that they will eventually come back. You know, as we all know, they've made our lives, you know, much, much better. And that's going to continue for years to come. So it's tough to avoid them uh, on a long term basis. But a lot of it depends on your your time frame and risk tolerance and, and those that are managing money uh, for a shorter term perspective, then you have to really appreciate that degree of uh, the extent that they've started to underperform and, and just uh, make note of that and, and really not be as quick to buy dips until we see evidence of them really strengthening back. Yeah. Victoria, I would love to get your take. Uh, Tesla, is it a car company or a tech company? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's at the intersection of the two. Um, it's also probably an Elon Musk company um, for the fanatics um, of his online. Um, but in terms of sort of the outlook for tech, I think that uh, this is really the time that you need to be a lot more uh, discriminate. You can't just be buying all of tech anymore. I still think there are good opportunities in technology. I mean, I'm thinking cybersecurity, for example, is really, really interesting at the moment for obvious reasons. Electric vehicles and battery metals as well, clearly a really, really interesting long-term um, important structural shift and we're going to only see increased demand for electric vehicles. Um, and also the shift to the cloud, that's extremely important and growing. And there are some major players there that are doing really, really well there, like Microsoft, for example, being uh, the obvious one. But when it comes to looking at the tech sector now, it's more about looking at debt levels and how indebted these companies are. Because I think some of the companies like Apple with very strong cash flows got unfairly punished at the beginning of the year when there was this whole debate about inflation and the prospect of higher interest rates and what that would mean for uh, companies who were reliant on debt. But we saw this uh, broad sell-off uh, that caught some of the companies that have very strong cash, cash positions. They sold off as well. Um, now, we have seen the likes of Apple stage pretty strong rebounds. 
we've seen clever investors see that these stocks are undervalued. This is a rare opportunity to buy a blue chip, impressive stock like Apple for cheap. That's why we've seen these quick rebounds in some of these names. Um, but I think tech is still really, really interesting. But like I say, it's just about uh, finding the right pockets within the sector itself. So which would you say is more interesting to you in this exact moment in time? Are we talking about tech or are we talking about Bitcoin? <laughs> well, I think what's interesting with Bitcoin is that it sort of sold itself as being an asset that is independent of the traditional financial system. But what we're actually learning is that it's really highly correlated with equities um, and traditional assets. So we've seen uh, risk on sentiment drive flows towards technology and Bitcoin in tandem this week. And we saw them sell off in quite a similar fashion uh, towards the start of the week. So actually, they're probably a lot more correlated um, than it would like to think that it is. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I know, uh, Mark, maybe you can touch on this as well. I've seen some um, charts being put out from a few people that do technical, and they're, they're kind of finding the correlation between the NASDAQ and Bitcoin. I'm wondering if you're seeing anything like that. 100%. And for the first time in a long time, we're seeing equities and, and cryptocurrencies uh, show a, a high degree of positive correlation. Uh, I'm not certain what breaks that, but at least in the near term, you know, both of them peaked out largely in the first week of November. And, and I don't mean S&P and the Qs, but I mean, in general, the broader equity market for the U.S. Uh, showed a peak in November and many stocks started to pull back. And so they all bottomed in the latter part of February, and we've had a decent little rally across the board in both. Um, you know, as to how do you play it from here on out, I think that, you know, I'm certainly a big buyer of, of cryptocurrencies on any meaningful weakness over the next few months. I think that, you know, long-term charts still look very appealing for the crypto space. And, but I think you have to be a little bit more opportunistic. And so whether you choose one versus the other depends on your risk tolerance and your time horizon. And, and some people don't like to see you know, 60 to 80 percent drawdowns. And so, uh, you know, I, I think that we all have to manage risk in the way that, that, that makes us all comfortable. Yeah. Victoria, I'd love to get a last word from you in regards to this, because I know over here in the States, we have more regulation around cryptocurrencies still, whereas Europe's a little bit more lax. Um, what are you seeing on your side of the pond in regards to uh, investors diving into, you know, the cryptocurrencies and which ones are most popular and stuff like that? Yeah, well, we don't offer cryptocurrencies on our platform, but certainly throughout the pandemic, there's been a huge surge in interest in cryptocurrencies. And it's gone far beyond the most popular Bitcoin and uh, Ether. We've seen uh, demand for so many other coins, some of the sort of smaller ones um, as well. So I think that's partly why we saw this um, huge surge in prices up towards those all-time highs in uh, November. But I think what we've learned in recent months, it's kind of served as a reminder that it is a very, very volatile asset class. And after the gains that we saw for most of last year, it might have been easy to forget that. So it's just served as a little reminder that this market does move sharply in both directions. Now, we are starting to see that bullishness come through once again, but we are still quite a long way off that high for Bitcoin, up around 69,000 from November. Um, so long term, I'd say I'm bullish on Bitcoin um, and cryptos, but I think you have to be okay with the bumps along the road. 
Yeah, I think we're all finding that out along the way. Uh, Victoria, Mark, really appreciate your time today. I've kept you way too long. Thank you so much for your insights and discussion. It was really good. I really appreciate it. You guys have a great weekend, okay? My pleasure. Thank Thank you very very much. much. All right, everyone. That is Victoria Scholar from, uh, sorry, Interactive Investor and Mark Newton from Fundstrat. Now, before we get out of here, let's take a quick moment to highlight our Catalyst watch items for next week. And since our resident Kim Khan is on vacation for his birthday, I get the pleasure of running through these for you today. So next week, investors should keep an eye out for the airline traffic reports that will be released. These numbers could impact the airline stocks as well as the JETS ETF, which the Seeking Alpha Quant system has a current strong sell rating on. Tuesday, April 5th, Microsoft will be hosting its hybrid work event and also on the 5th, Analog Devices is holding its investor day. Now, on Wednesday, the market will have all eyes on the newly released FOMC minutes from the last meeting. And at the time of writing, Fed Futures currently holds a 70% probability that the Fed will need to announce a 75 to 100 basis point jump in interest rates at their next meeting on May 4th. Now, let's enter the quick rundown. BTIG Cannabis and Bitcoin 2022 conferences are being held next week. The FDA is meeting in regards to vaccine boosters, and Accenture, ticker ACN, is holding its investor conference on Thursday, April 7th. Lastly, earnings on deck include Congra Brands, ticker CAG, Lamb Weston, ticker LW, and Price Mart, ticker PSMT, and those will be on April 7th. And that is all for this week's episode, and until next week, have a great weekend.